Hi, everyone. It's Scott, and I'm back for a little Doc Talk. So I typically talk to a director about a specific film, but not today. This time, I'm talking to a documentary producer with a fascinating backstory. His name is David Holdhouse. If there's any filmmaker who summons the idea of the most interesting man in the world, it has to be Holdhouse. The man has led a fascinating life. You may know Holdhouse from his early days as a journalist. He once infiltrated seamy underworlds and then phoned home with colorful dispatches. These typically ran in alt-weeklies like Denver's Westward. Holdhouse's appetite for the underworld has never waned, but print media has. But no matter, fate intervened. An old friend, Tiller Russell, asked Holdhouse if he'd help produce a documentary film called The 7-5. That's the only break Holdhouse needed. He has gone on to produce many films you may have seen on the big streamers, among them Night Stalker and Sasquatch. Make no mistake, Holdhouse is still a man of words, and he always will be, but his medium is no longer a newspaper story. It's now a script. Holdhouse joins me today to talk about his path from a newspaper-obsessed kid in Anchorage, Alaska, to an alternative journalist, to the producer of Netflix and Hulu documentaries. So hi, David. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, brother. Thanks for having me. So I, I really love your origin story because not many kids grew up fascinated with newspapers. Can you talk a little bit about your childhood? My family moved to Anchorage, Alaska when I was seven years old, uh, 1978. And so growing up in Anchorage in the late 70s and 80s um, was really kind of a, looking back on it now, it was really sort of a different era, meaning like like my friends and I, we, we like ran a trap line in the winter on a creek that was like we could access, you know, we trapped rabbits. And in the summer, you know, we fished for Dolly Varden in a creek that was just like, you know, probably probably half a kilometer from uh, from the house I grew up in. And we were really like free range kids, you know, so I just kind of like the classic Alaska childhood in a way. You know, I realized at a really young age, I wanted to be a writer and I was fascinated by, uh, at the time there, there, there were two newspapers in Anchorage, the Anchorage Times and the, and the Anchorage Daily News. And, uh, so two really strong daily newspapers and I read them both faithfully uh, every day when they come out, my parents took both papers. I would lay both papers out, uh, pretty much every day and look at, the at, at how different writers wrote about the same stories, you know? Yeah. I just was fascinated with, with the art and craft of newspapering from a very early age. And really about ninth grade, I was pretty determined to, to be a journalist. I mean, I, there was never really any, as soon as I started formulating ideas about really what I wanted to be when I grew up, I was pretty clear that I wanted to be a, a journalist. So I read that you were inspired by Hunter S. Thompson. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what made him such a fascinating, I guess, role model for you journalistically and how his work later impacted you? Well, I didn't discover Hunter S. Thompson until I was in college. And I, I sort of discovered the Holy Trinity at the same time, which to me was Joan Didion and Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson, right? All of them new journalists. I mean, I went to University of California, Santa Cruz, which had a very small journalism department, but an excellent one, I think. And it was, you know, so I was at that journalism school, 
we were taught to um, understand the rules of uh, mainstream, you know, so-called mainstream daily journalism, like, you know, writing in an inverted pyramid and, and striving for objectivity and all that. But to understand those rules in order to be able to properly break them was the journalism school <laughs> that, that, um, that I sort of came up in, was trained in. It was a really great professor of mine, Con Hallinan, that introduced me to those journalists and to the concept of gonzo journalism or new journalism. And, uh, which which had already been around. I mean, this is like, I'm talking like late 80s now, that it had already been around for a couple of decades. Most people, uh, you know, they know Hunter S. Thompson from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is, you know, a great book. But the first Hunter S. Thompson that I read was Hell's Angels, which was his first book, which is one where he embedded with the Hell's Angels in the Bay Area, California, in order to, to write, you know, feature-length uh, story that became a book about the motorcycle gang. And I was just immediately taken with that approach to reporting, that approach being sort of full immersion, you know, which requires you to have a couple of things. One, it requires you to have the time to do it. So you've got to have an editor, you've got to have a situation uh, where you're, you know, whatever, whoever's publishing your work will give you the time to properly execute that approach. But it also takes a lot of nerve. <laughs> if you're talking about motorcycle gang, or like in my case, you know, white supremacist groups, or or uh, living on the street with uh, homeless kids, or staying up for 72 hours straight with crystal meth addicts. I mean, I that's I, as soon as. But point being, as soon as I read Hell's Angels, I was like, that that's what I want to do, and I, I want to write about edgy things, and I want to do it in a way where I'm experiencing what I'm writing about. So we'll eventually get to documentary film, but I, I, I find that your point of view is so elemental to understanding who you are. When you think about, you know, the so-called gonzo journalism, what do you think that that sort of journalism brings to the table that conventional journalism doesn't? Well, first of all, I want to preface my answer by saying that I think that there is there's a huge, huge value to conventional journalism. One of those conventions being that the writer or the reporter you know, tries to keep their own viewpoint out of the story, like so, so-called straight news. There's a huge value to that in our society. And, and we've got a lot less uh, really high caliber straight news reporting being conducted and presented in the United States than, than we used to. And I think that's to the great detriment of our culture and especially, you know, a healthy democracy. So with that said, though, <laughs> uh, straight news reporting was never really for me. And I suspected that even when I was in college, um, and then confirmed it by, after I graduated from college, I went and worked for the Anchorage Daily News uh, for about two years, where I was kind of forced to operate within the confines and conventions of mainstream journalism and found that it was a frustrating experience for me. Part of it is, to, to answer your question about what it brings, it brings uh, a, a more refined sense of storytelling, I think. Storytelling needs a storyteller. And it's 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 beyond just presenting facts and information in an organized and clear fashion. It's actually layering over the facts and information. It's layering over a storytelling sensibility that is um, individualist, meaning it's uh, you need to have a voice uh, for it to work. The journalism I was doing when I was in college was definitely gonzo journalism. And then I thought, well, maybe I've outgrown this and maybe I'll go, you know, go get a quote unquote real job after I graduated. And I'll work for, you know, a, a pretty, pretty big time uh, daily newspaper and see how it goes. But it just didn't work out. I've, I found myself always kind of straining at the reins and um, wanting to, you know, push the boundaries and, and wanting to get my own voice in there. 
you know, I think that a lot of times mm, there's there's definitely usually typically there's a rule in straight news reporting against having a first person uh, perspective, you know, using the eye. <laughs> and um, it wasn't so much that I didn't always I wasn't always wanting to write you know, from my perspective and, and write in the first person voice. But I was always wanting to have attitude uh, in, in, in the writing that I was doing that's just not allowed. And, and again, for good reason, I think, at, at a mainstream daily. Do you think that in some ways that conventional and however you want to call it, Gonzo or some other label, do you think they're the yin and yang of truth, if you will, that it takes both to really make sense of the world? Yes, I think that there that there's I, in an, in an ideal situation, ideally, right? There that Gonzo versus mainstream journalism is a yin and yang relationship, and sort of one both supporting the other, you know. Um, but things are out of whack these days because there's 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 less uh, straight news reporting happening, and you know, with the advent of the internet, starting really, I noticed it in the late '90s. Uh, you know, all of a sudden anybody can be a gonzo journalist, right? And so, yeah, people that, you know, and that hadn't learned the rules first and so weren't even breaking them properly, you know, is my perspective that we're just out there, you know, dropping acid and going and covering whatever and thinking they were the next Hunter S. Thompson. And that's not what it's about. You got to, you, look, you've got to be, in my opinion, you've got to be able to do straight news reporting in order to be a legitimate high caliber gonzo reporter meaning otherwise you've got to have the reporting chops you've got to know how to interview you've got to know how to like be accurate frankly i mean it's like that's the thing is that is that even if you're doing gonzo journalism to do it right you still have to be accurate you know my guidelines are always don't be inaccurate and don't be boring those are my ethics okay simply put don't be inaccurate and don't be boring but accuracy is paramount Accuracy is paramount. And I, and then, you know, again, once I saw like all all these uh, so-called gonzo journalists self-publishing, the the strict adherence to the ethics of of accuracy just seemed to go out the window. Um, So, but yes, to answer your question, you know, I think the ideal um, scenario in terms of like, journalism you know providing full value is that is that straight news reporters kind of do the first draft and then the gonzo or new journalists come in come in behind them and and provide the provide the perspective and the voice and the storytelling that's how it should work you know ideally so uh, much like uh, Liam Neeson you have a unique set of skills which in in your case is the ability to penetrate worlds that would make an ordinary person very squeamish yeah. Was that an acquired skill or is that something that you developed? Well, you know, I'm going to take this on a, in, on a dark turn here. Okay. Which is that, I mean, anybody that, that, that's followed my work or, or at all, you know, this about me already. I'm very like upfront with this and talk about it, you know, publicly. But when I was seven years old, 1978, I was sexually assaulted when I was, you know, a kid. So it's a very uh, early childhood traumatic experience. And Looking back on it now, I can see a direct line between that um, terrible uh, happening when I was seven and how my personality developed and even like my choice of profession and especially how I chose to approach it. And, And here's why, is that the way I survived that both in the immediate experience and the, and the sort of emotional aftermath 
was to compartmentalize and sort of separate myself from the actual horror of the experience. And um, that, I think, in a way, developed into kind of a, this may sound grandiose, but almost like a superpower, meaning it's, it became something that I was able to then turn on and off when I was doing gonzo journalism or when I was working undercover, you know, as a skinhead. Or um, even just when I wasn't working undercover, but just be able to put myself in the situations that, frankly, you know, <laughs> would scare the shit out of uh, out of a quote unquote normal, well adjusted person to even be in this situation. You know, the situations like, uh, you know, one time I was I was uh, embedded with a street gang in Tempe, Arizona, and I was at a stash house of theirs where there was a lot of drugs and a lot of weapons out in the open, and all of a sudden there were. Um, there was a police raid team outside the house, you know, and some of the lookouts came and was like, you know, the cops are here, right? Five O, And these guys started like gunning up, meaning they were getting out weapons. And I was like, um, I wasn't scared. I was like, this is, this is great for the story. <laughs> Whatever is about to happen is going to be good for the story. Now that's not a normal reaction to being in that situation. I understand that. But, um, you know, all the way through my twenties and into my early thirties, uh, I was able to just turn the turn the disassociation dial up just enough to where I could function in what would otherwise be a white knuckle terrifying situation, but sort of not feel the fear that would uh, typically be associated with it. That's the best I can explain it. I believe I read that confronting your abusers changed something inside of you that you no longer had the need or maybe even the ability to disassociate yourself from dangerous settings. Is that right? Yeah, it um it kind of in short, you know, in in, in short order, I, I confronted, you know, my rapist, and I wrote about it. I wrote about the experience of having been raped when I was seven, uh, and went public with it. And just the and it was a combination, I think, of confronting him and writing about it, and then in in fairly short order, I, I met the met the woman that became my wife. I've been married now for almost eighteen years. And the best way I can put it is that um, the combination of those experiences, those experiences being confronting the rapist and writing about the rape, and then meeting the woman that, you know, was the love of my life and the mother of my children, I suddenly held my own life in more value than I had before. And I became uh, a bit more uh, careful about putting myself in dangerous situations. And I first became aware of that because... After it was about a year after we'd been married, I got an assignment from Rolling Stone magazine to go and um, uh, embed and skid row in Los Angeles and write about it. You know, and skid row then and now is just a hellscape. I mean, it's just, it's just a terrifying place. And I um, and I tried it, but I I went there with the intention of you know living on the street in Skid Row for a week, two weeks, whatever it took. And I don't think I even made it thirty six hours. And the reason was is that I was afraid. And they, you know, being the normal residents of that area, they could sense they could sense the fear, and they could sense that I didn't really belong there. And for the first time, really, I was not able to um, blend in. And I sort of gave off, you know, the, like these psychic signals that I didn't belong. And uh, I, had to, I had to bail on the story. And it was a great assignment. It would have been a great piece, but I just, I couldn't get it done. So, and that was when I first registered, oh, there's something different going on here in my life now. 
it sounds like the threshold for that discomfort change. But still, I think relative to the ordinary American, you still have a very interesting edge to to you and to your work. I'm curious, roughly around the same time in terms of years, you start to make that transition into documentary, which is obviously the thing I really wanted to dig into today. Tell me about how you see the role in, of storytelling in journalism versus the, the role of storytelling in documentary. And did, did you see that, that shift coming in your life? No, I didn't. It was only, I mean, I've been making documentaries for about a decade now, and it was only just about two or three years ago that when people would ask me what I did for a living, I would start answering, well, I'm a documentary filmmaker rather than, well, I'm a journalist. Even though it had been true for several years prior to that, that mostly what I was doing was making docs rather than writing articles. For me, it was a pretty smooth transfer of the skill set, meaning I don't other than it takes a minute to kind of get a handle on docs being a visual storytelling medium, meaning kind of if it doesn't happen on camera, it doesn't really, you know, you can't really use it. But once you know, I got my head around that, it feels like the same, the same muscles, you know, it feels like the same muscles of being like a gonzo, you know, magazine writer as being a, a documentary filmmaker. Um, they are at least like, you know, close cousins, if that makes sense. People aren't reading long form writing uh these days <laughs> the same way they did in the 80s 90s it's just not it's very rare that you have a magazine piece sort of um penetrate the consciousness or become part of the zeitgeist however you want to put it part of the reason i made the switch is just i i i'm i i want people to experience my work or hear my stories however you want to put it and so i just realized at a certain point like doc the documentary storytelling form was ascendant and, you know, sad to say, like magazine writing was was headed in an opposite trajectory. So you, you broke in with Tiller Russell on the 7.5, if I'm correct. Tell me about that first experience. That must have been like really eye-opening and fascinating for you. How I got into docs is just like one of those, it's a classic example. Like you, you never know what seemingly minor event is going to have a major impact on your life. When I was uh, a reporter based in Phoenix, uh, working for the Phoenix New Times in the 90s, I did a lot of reporting down on the down on the border, on um, both sides of the line. Um, you know, Nogales, Arizona, but also Nogales, Sonora, down to Hermosillo, and you know, pretty much all over Sonora, the state of Sonora in Mexico. And uh, there's this legendary um, reporter named Chuck Bowden, who's now passed, but um, he contacted me. He was like, "Look, you know, you're doing good work, but you're going to get yourself killed. You, like, you don't know what you're doing." And so, let me kind of school you on how to properly do investigative reporting in Mexico. And he lived in Tucson. And um, became a, a mentor of mine, you know, uh, for a few years, a few key years in my career. And then in the um, uh, spring of 2000, he called me up and he's like, look, I got this buddy of mine who's a, kind of a high-powered defense attorney in Dallas. And his, his kid uh, is uh, going to film school at the University of Southern California. And he's doing for a senior project, he's doing a documentary on um, underground cockfighting. And I had recently done a piece in Phoenix on underground cockfighting. And um, he was like, will you do an interview for this kid's film? <laughs> I was like, oh, man, you know, I don't want to. Come on, Chuck. And he called in a chit. He was like, look, I need you to do me this favor. And so I was like, okay. So I, I you know, this 
student filmmaker came and interviewed me for a couple hours about cockfighting. And, but that, you know, kid at the time was Tiller Russell, who's now a legendary documentary filmmaker, you know, one of the, one of the best in the game. Uh, and several years went by. And during that time, you know, between 2000, you know, 2005, somewhere around there, uh, Tiller was, he graduated from USC film school and he started making documentaries, started making documentary TV. But then when he finally got his like kind of first break where he, where he got a gig to direct his first feature length investigative documentary, he called me up kind of out of the blue and asked if I would ride shotgun for him on it. I was like, I don't know how to make documentaries, bro. And he was like, you know, trust me, like you'll figure it out. Like a lot of what you already know how to do is what this is. And he was right. And so that's, that's how, that's how it started. Yeah. And it was a documentary called the, called the seven five that was, uh, and it started off, it was like another, another similarity between, between, uh, journalism and, and documentaries I found is that sometimes the best, the, some of the best stories that I wound up writing when I was doing magazine and all weekly writing, they, the assignment started off as one thing and then became something else. And one of the, I think, points of delineation between, um, you know, average and above average, let's put it that way, journalists and journalism is that ability to pivot, that ability to see like, oh, I went into this thinking that this story was one thing, but I can now see that the better story is something else entirely that's related or derives from the original subject or the original assignment. But you know, it became something else. And that happened with the seven five. It was originally the, um, it was supposed to be a documentary about the Mullen commission, which is what it seems like every 10 to 15 years, right? The NYPD has this big corruption scandal. And this was the, the Mullen commission was the corruption scandal immediately after the Serpico corruption scandal. Right. And so it was originally is going to be a documentary about the Mullen Commission and what it uncovered. And, you know, there was which was widespread corruption in the NYPD. But in in doing on the ground, you know, preliminary work, no cameras, just meeting people, developing sources in New York, um, Tiller very quickly, Tiller Russell very quickly keyed in on this guy, Mike Dowd who was the leader of a ring of corrupt cops in the 75th precinct, the 7-5, which is in the East New York part of Brooklyn in the 80s. Um, and just, and he's like, he met, and funny enough, like Mike Dowd, which is hilarious for anybody who's seen the movie, was was working security at the U.S. Open at the time. Um, and, uh, and Tiller met this guy and he was like, listen, I think that you know, this movie just became something else entirely from what we've originally been hired to do. And we're gonna have to figure out a way to sell the production company on this. But he's like, I think this guy is Mike Dowd and his crew. I think they're the story. I think they're the way in to tell the story of police corruption in New York in the 80s, rather than focusing on the commission and what it uncovered. Let's go inside this this crew of corrupt police um, if we can get him to talk. And uh, it was it was a brilliant move because it became a really excellent uh, documentary that I think would have been dry uh, and unfocused, frankly, by comparison, if we had stuck with the original assignment. So it became, you know, developing sources again, the same thing you do in print journalism, like getting Mike Dowd to trust us, getting him to reach out to the members of his former crew, a lot of whom he hadn't talked to since the, since the mid eighties, right. When they'd all gone to prison and putting them in touch with us and if sort of vouching for us and developing them as sources. 
um, you know, it takes time, but that's, that, um, that's how that movie came together. Yeah. Having seen the seven five, I, I can't imagine the previous movie because the, the one you made just crackles. What did you learn about making a documentary from kind of just watching Tiller at work? Yeah. When I saw the schedule, uh, for when we were going to start shooting interviews, I was like, what do you mean we could only do like two interviews a day? And I was like, why we got, you know, we've, we've got 15 people at least we want to talk to in this first wave. I, I, because I was used to, of course, to just showing up with a notepad or maybe a notepad and, uh, you know, a digital recorder or a tape recorder in the old days, right. And just doing the interview. So I had no, I had no comprehension at that point of how time consuming it is to set up uh, a documentary interview, as you know, you know, especially like at the level that Tiller likes to operate, which is that it's basically a, a, a feature film uh, level of production value. You know, everything is beautifully lit and it takes a long time to set up. Now, there's a downside to that when you're making docs is that it, you can't be very nimble when you have that much gear involved and that much setup time. And usually that, you know, you've got one director of photography who is defining the visual aesthetic of that particular film or series. And so you can't really work with another DP, you know? So it's only like, once you start down that road, that it's like that director of photography's availability um, determines, you know, your, your production schedule, when you can do interviews, you know, point being like, especially if you're doing an investigative documentary, sometimes, you know, if you've been working on a source for months or even a year or two, trying to get them to agree to do an interview, go on camera. And if they, if you get them to a place where they agree, um, sometimes it's to your detriment to, to then have to, to wait until the stars align and your director of photographers available, photography is available and you can get all the gear. And it like, it's like, it's like mobilizing a battleship to go shoot an interview. Um, but it looks great. Okay. It looks great. And as, as the, as the budgets for documentaries have gotten bigger and bigger over the last decade, you know, audiences have, have started to come to expect almost that level of, of quality. So that was the, the answer to your original question. Like that's, that was the, that was the steepest learning curve for me was understanding just how like important all the gear was and how, how long it takes to set up and break down for interviews. And, and also there's, you know, you need, um, documentary interviews are performative, meaning like the best interviews, like the person is not only giving you information, but it's not just what they say, it's how they say it right when they're on camera. And that may seem like self-evident, I guess it is, but I had to make that adjustment, like realizing like, it's not, you know, when you're writing a print piece, it's obviously somebody gives you a quote and you put it on paper and, and it's like, it's like the reader, when they're reading the quote, they almost add their own like inflection, their own like their picture of, of like that person saying it. And so it's like the words themselves, like a great quote in print is just the words themselves. But on camera, the source has to be able to, or the subject has to be able to deliver <laughs> the words in a, in a performative way to really make it um, excellent. So it's that, that took some adjustment too. I believe all your credits are some formulation of producer, whether it be executive producer, associate producer, like how has that role for you changed as you've gone through your career? You know, it, it really hasn't. I think my, my credit on the seven, five was associate producer. And then I moved up from there to producer 
and then co-executive producer and then executive producer? And the answer is what I've been doing for these, for these shows has been the same. Um, I guess once I was at the executive producer level, I might be managing a team of, of, of three or four people in addition to sort of doing my own thing. But what I've been doing in documentaries since I started with the seven five is, um, you know, it's, it's pre-production research. So it's reporting basically it's, it's digging up old news articles and, and, and calling around to sources and meeting with sources and figuring out who will be good on camera and, you know, who, who's good enough, who will be good enough on camera to be an A-level source. Who's more of a second tier source, maybe, um, you know, prepping interviews, uh, you know, writing, coming up with a list of questions, doing sort of dry runs with the sources. In many cases, then I conduct the interviews myself uh, for these series. So it's it's doing the actual interviews. And then the, the part of it that I like the most is um, writing the first draft of the documentary. So meaning that I, I start, I have a very sort of old school method when it comes to writing docs, which is that I have transcripts of all the interviews and then I have transcripts of all the archival material that we have. So it's it's like, you know, an old news clip. Like, what is this news? What happens in the news clip? And what does the reporter say when he's standing on the street from the courthouse in 1987? Um, and then I have kind of a shot list of, of things that uh, the team has filmed that are you know, a little sort of like um, interlude or transition uh, images and then I just literally write a document. So instead of working, I mean, a lot of producers and directors um, will work in an actual editing bay to do what I do on paper. So I then create a paper script, a document that has, you know, time coded interview uh, excerpts from the transcripts and markers for specific pieces of archival and then suggestions and markers for specific pieces of, of footage to try and kind of tie different sections together. And then I give that document to an editor or editors and they use that to create the sort of first rough cut of the, of the film or the series. And I've been doing that since the seven five. Um, it's just that my title got better and the money got better. <laughs> Otherwise the job has been the same. Now I recently, um, I, I recently had my first outing as a director and showrunner, which is actually being, you know, in, in, in charge uh, the top the top creative position on the series for a show that'll come out uh, on Peacock. I think this fall. I think it's right now. It, it's scheduled for release uh, in October. Uh, that could change because of the writers' strike that's going on right now. Some some networks are are starting to hold. If they've got a documentary that's completed or close to completed, they're they're holding it, kind of stockpiling it, if you will. Um, and delaying the release. But as of now, it's, it's a show that's about organized crime and the Hare Krishna movement in the, in the eighties. And that'll come out, uh, in October on Peacock. That's been the first time that I've actually been credited as showrunner as well as an executive producer. Um, but you know, I, I've kind of found out the hard way that a lot of, um, a lot of being a director or showrunner and those, those terms are essentially interchangeable, uh, in docs is um is dealing with with studio executives which i found out the hard way is not my forte i've always been sort of like when i was working with tiller or other directors there's always been a kind of buffer between me and the editors uh and the and the getting the notes from the studio executives uh or the production company 
um, meaning like there's always a filter or, or, or extra level of cushion between me and actually having to, having to deal with the, with the politics and diplomacy, um, of, of working with, with studio executives. I had not done a lot of that before. And I found, um, that it was definitely kind of a weak point for me on this Hare Krishna show. There is a distinction between kind of finding your story and, and making your story. Some people make the story with kind of a, a speculative script, which is here's the story I think exists. What you're describing is more, let's go out there and talk to people and find the story after the fact. Do, do you find that one way works better than, than the other, or do you typically always wait until this you... Is, this is a generalization, but generally the biggest difference between documentaries and feature films or scripted shows is that generally scripted shows and feature films are written before they're shot. And with documentaries, it's the opposite, or I think the best documentaries. I think the best way to approach documentaries is to go out and cast a pretty wide net when you're doing interviews and filming. You know, it's kind of a wide, a, wide of a net as your budget will allow in terms of uh, how many people you interview, what you talk to them about, um, how much you know, footage you, sh you shoot, how much archival you acquire. And then documentaries, or at least the best documentaries, are really written in post, meaning they're really written and created after production for the most part has been completed. So you're like, okay, here's all this material we have. And I used to do, you know, print journalism stories the same way. I mean, I'd like, uh, you know, m go and interview far more people than would actually wind up being in the story a lot of the time. And it's the same thing with docs. Like it's, it's, they're written between the, 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 the director and the, and the producers that are actually involved creatively and the editors they are written in the Bay, meaning like they're written in collaboration. Uh, it's a team effort. Um, once you've, once you've shot most of the, of, of the footage that will be used. And then there's usually a kind of late in the game, there's like one or two last production pushes where you're like, okay, we actually need to go back to this source or we need to, there's actually this person that, that actually is a key interview that we didn't get the first time around. You know, that usually happens like around, you know, rough cut two or fine cut one. So in other words, about, you know, the, the second or third, uh, complete version of, of the project is when you go back out and do that. But yeah, I don't, um, again, I think that to my earlier point about that some of the best stories or best docs have been ones that started off as one thing and became something else entirely. Um, I, I think that there's a real, it would be to one's detriment to go, to go in with a really rigid idea of what the story is. You know, like I have, you know, I've been, I've been in pitches recently where I've had executives ask me like, well, you know, what's, what, what, what do you see as the structure for the series? And it's like, well, we haven't shot an interview yet, you know? So they want, they want the easy answer, but it's like, well, we haven't even started to make this thing really. We know it's like, we know there's a great story here, but if you're being honest and you're good at it, you're like, well, you don't have any idea how to tell it just yet <laughs> until you've actually gone and gone and gone and shot the show. Right. I mean, in my opinion, now that's not what they want to hear, you know, so you got to come up with some kind of answer, but it's like the, the truth is um, you may, the structure of, of how the show, you know, is it, is it a linear, do you follow a linear timeline or are you, you know, are you jumping around in the actual, actual timeline of events in order to have big reveals? I mean, it just, you don't know until you, until you have a gone and filmed a lot of interviews and acquired a lot of archival and then B sat down with all of it and sort of rewatched everything. And they're like, okay, what do we have? 
you know, what, what is actually the story that we want to tell and how do we want to tell it? And to go into production, meaning to go into filming with any sort of like rigid, um, fully formulated idea of what the structure of the show will be or like what, you know, just be like, these are the 20 questions that for this, for this interview subject. And we're just going to stick to those. I mean, no, the more sort of like nimble and, um, you know, open, open to change you can be, I think the better. Isn't it also true though, that to formulate good questions, you would have to have a fairly decent idea of what the story should be. Is that, is that not the case? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. You're going to have, um, probably, you know, a certain 20 to 25 questions you're going to ask every interview subject about a given topic or a given story, but you have to be, you know, you have to, you have to be open to revelation, uh, in the process of the interview. You have to be open to the game changing for sure. You've got to have a plan. There's always certain core questions that you're going to get everybody to address. I, I think that the best interviews are, are ones where, you know, the subject has the time to, um, you know, if, if you've asked them a question and it takes them in a, in a completely different direction, you just follow them and let them talk. And sometimes, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes when you're in the chair and you're doing the interview, you're listening to them talk and they've been talking for 10 minutes and you're like, you know, none of this is going in the show. None of this is really on topic. But then as they follow their own thought train, all of a sudden, sometimes they may wind up at a very interesting place. that's like bullseye on target. <laughs> you got to be willing to, to burn the time and kind of like be up there, you know, dancing on the high wire <laughs> and, and, uh, and hope that, hope that it's going to go somewhere interesting. And, and more often than not, it does, you know, more often than not, it does. If you've got somebody who's, who's just talking and sort of freestyling, they know why they're there. And sometimes, especially if it's a very sensitive topic, someone is talking, it's like they're building themselves up to going where you really want them to go. And you just got to like, give them give them the time and space for them to work up to it. So I'm wondering about the scale of these productions. Um, how big are the teams you're working on and how long does the typical project run from start to finish? Yeah, there's some variation, but a good rule of thumb is about a year. And, and that's, and that's from, not from like starting to develop an idea. That's from the time that you've actually, that you've actually sold it or you have financing from when you're actually moving into, you know, pre-production where everybody's getting paid from that point to delivering the show that will be aired is a good rule of thumb is about a year, usually a little more, probably around 14, 15 months. Um, in terms of team size, I would say usually the core creative team is around 10 to a dozen people. Yeah, that, that's editors, producers, director, showrunner, you know, kind of all in, archivist. But I've worked on projects that are much bigger than that. And I worked on, um, you know, uh, the, the show that I did for, for Hulu, Sasquatch, was a good example of a pretty, pretty small, small team. I think that was more like six to eight. So almost by necessity, I, I imagine there's some overlapping of projects in terms of which stage of maturation each one is in. Is that? Yeah, I feel like I can work on two projects at once competently and, you know, have the quality be where I want it to be. But two projects gets tricky if they're both in production at the same time. Production is, is um, it's extremely time intensive. Those are really long days. It usually involves travel. You know, when I say long days, I mean 16, 18 hours is normal. 
and it's so it's really kind of crazy making if if you're if you're doing kind of back to back production trips and usually a production trip is anywhere from five to twenty days, you know, on different projects. I mean, it's just it's, it's exhausting and it's and it's hard to properly do the, the the prep work. I've done it, but um, it's not an experience I care to repeat. But if you've got if you're working on two different shows and one is like in pre production and the other one is in post, that's a good sort of overlap schedule meaning with one project you're sort of gearing up to start shooting and with the other project you're totally done shooting and it's like you're in the you know second or third wave of editing or second or third iteration of the show um that that's that's manageable and those are those are phases that i think sort of complement one another or can work in harmony so as a creative person you, you mentioned that working with execs maybe not your favorite thing but do you feel like you're taken as much of a role as you want to, or are there other places you want to go in, in this field? For me, I've realized that the story is more important than my role in telling it. What I mean is that I would much rather be, you know, I'd much rather be riding shotgun uh, for, for a director and not running the show or directing myself if the story is one that I'm, that I'm super into than then directing a show that's like you know another sort of serial killer of the month true crime you know show for wherever you know um meaning that it's like i i've kind of learned the hard way that to put the story uh in pole position and to make my judgments about what i'm going to work on next and what projects i'm actually going to take on um based on the story more so than whether or not I get to direct it. What I like the most is working with editors. You know, editors don't get nearly enough credit in documentaries. You know, the truth is, is that they deserve as much, if not more, credit than, than directors. And I say that as someone who's not going to have a directing credit or showrunning credit to my name. Then they, they deserve at least as much credit when it comes to the creative success. Now, as I said earlier, like there's a lot of politics and diplomacy in dealing with the business side of things and dealing with studios that only a director showrunner does that the editors are insulated with. If I had time to start over, which I don't, I might be an editor. You know, I, I might learn the like technical skills to be able to like run the machines because there are, I mean, there are directors that work with editors, but they're just like basically button pushers. They're technicians, you know, uh, Tiller Russell uh, considers his editors to be, you know, fully fledged collaborators. And I sort of came up under, under his tutelage and I have the same approach, meaning like I want to work with editors who are fellow storytellers who feel that they can voice any idea at any time. And they are fully, you know, invested collaborators rather than just technicians that are like putting this footage here and I'll put this here like they are, um, yeah, just full on members of the creative team. So I wanted to pivot to the industry at large. Uh, and I think you and I chatted about this briefly before there does seem to be a shift underway and there's a lot of buzz among filmmakers. And I see that here locally in Durham as well. This idea that the big streamers are moving away from big investments in documentary, unless it's true crime or something that's a little bit more kind of in the uh, kind of the center of the bullseye of, of public taste. W what are you seeing uh, are the trends that are at, at hand? Well, it's, it's kind of a nervous time right now. I mean, conventional wisdom would be that a writer's strike would be good for documentaries and that, you know, if you've got, if, if every, if every scripted project in the universe is all of a sudden on hold, uh, that, that networks and streamers would be needing to, to buy more unscripted, um, 
projects. But so far, that hasn't really proven to be the case. Now, we're not you know that far into the strike yet. But even prior to the strike, it's just a nervous time in Hollywood, man. There's been a lot of like, there's been a lot of layoffs. There's been a lot of consolidation. And and um, it, there is a sense that sort of the gold rush of documentaries that started, you know, around 2012, somewhere around there and been lasted for the better part of a decade. That that's like, it's slackening off. But at the same time, like I have a lot of optimism still in the future of, of the documentary industry, just because there's an audience appetite for it. You know, it being like premium documentaries that, that aren't all true crime. Now there's a lot of true crime. There's way too much in my opinion. Uh, documentary, true crime documentaries, especially especially serial killer docs, and I say that having you know been uh, a member of the core team that made Night Stalker for Netflix, which was a which was a big hit for Netflix, and I think a really good series. Success in- inspires imitation, and after Night Stalker, I can't tell you how many how many offers I've had to direct serial killer shows, and I'm like, nope, no, no interest, right? But to answer your question, man, like, where do I see it going? I think it's it's going to stabilize. I think it's going to stabilize in the next six months, and I think like there's still going to be, I think budgets are going to get lower. You know, I think that that there's going to be a bit less money in it for the for the executive producers. Um, for the people that create the shows, you know, especially those that are not active EPs, meaning like a passive EP for those that don't really know the game is like, basically you come up with an idea, you help sell the idea, and then you sit back and you like maybe watch a cut and provide some notes here or there, but otherwise you're just collecting money and, um, good work if you can get it right. But I think that there's going to be less money for, for EP fees, but I don't think that we're going to see a drop in the quality of, of docs. Uh, I just think that it's like, you know, people are just not going to be able to make quite as much money as they have been for the last decade. You've been involved in some colorful true crime projects, but you also have that rich experience in journalism under your belt. I'm wondering, where would you like to take your career next? Well, I think the main thing for me is that the, the, the Hulu show Sasquatch that I referenced, that was the first and so far only time that I've been on camera. Uh, as a nonfiction storyteller, and after after that show came out, I was like, you know, I don't I don't know if I ever want to do that again. That being like <clears throat> to go on camera, but I think that I do want to do it at least once more. Kind of saddle up for that once more, and so it's just um, and I'm in a fortunate position of being able to be kind of picky about what that project will be. So it's just uh, and I have one that I really want to do that's actually set in Alaska, and that's about all I can say about it right now. And that's out with, you know, we, we, the team I'm working on that with, we took it out to, you know, all the Curtis, a lot of like major potential buyers um, in the last month or so in, in the late spring, early summer, 2023. So waiting to hear back on that. And uh, hopefully what's next will, will be that. And I'll be on camera at least once more. Um, it's an investigative doc. It is somewhat in the true crime space. Here I am talking more about it, even though I said I'd not to. <laughs> I wasn't going to, so I'll just say that much. But um, so, yeah, to answer your question, dude, um, finding the right next on-camera project and then really wrestling with, like, do I, do I want to um, be a director of another show? Do I want to deal with the politics and, and sort of hassle of being the, the direct nexus between the creative team and the studio? Um, because there is an art to that. I just don't know that it has much to do with storytelling. It's more like it has to do with protecting the integrity of the storytelling. Uh, right. You know, <laughs> so um, I, I need to figure out whether or not I want to do that again, because while I like, you know, being, 
I like being able to, to direct a team, a creative team. In reality, that's what I was already doing, even when I wasn't directing the the series. You know, I was working with um, with really great collaborators in terms of editors and producers, and uh, where everyone pretty much has a has an equal seat at the table. That's what I like doing. You know, uh, and that's not necessarily you do get to do that as a director, but you have to deal with a lot of other responsibilities and hassles as well. Well, it strikes me that maybe the next leg up would be complete creative control in terms of. Um, not just the story, but the the visual storytelling, like the look and feel, uh, the music. Uh, like, is, is that something that appeals to you in terms of like going beyond storytelling and into the the full? It does, and I think for yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think that 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 I'm figuring out that the way to go with with directing will be to self finance, meaning to raise the money, which I think I can at this point in the game to raise the money to make something exactly the way that I want to make it and then take it out and sell it more of kind of like a, it's almost like an old school method, right? You're like, you make a doc and then you take it to Sundance or South by Southwest or Tribeca film festival and you do the festival circuit and then you find a buyer coming off, coming off hype from the festival, right? It it still happens, but it's not the sort of standard you know, MO for, for making, uh, bringing docs to market anymore. Most, most premium docs now, you know, you develop an idea and then you sell the idea and, you know, Netflix or Hulu or Showtime or wherever they buy, they give you a certain amount of money. But then from the minute that you take that money, right, then you, you have to negotiate, then, then you're involved in a constant negotiation and um, between what the studio wants and what your creative vision in its purest form is. And um, I think that probably what's next is, is to get the financing to be able to make something exactly the way that I want to make it. David, thank you again. I, I really enjoyed your reflections on a really remarkable career, and I can't wait to see what's next. Okay, man. Thanks. Good talking with you. Thanks again to David Holdhouse. His many films are plastered all over the place. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime. I've seen The 7-5 and can recommend it. And if you want to see the man himself, he plays an on-screen role in Sasquatch, the Hulu series based on Holdhouse's own experiences in California's Emerald Triangle in the mid-90s. Join me next time when I talk to the dynamic duo of Lance and Brandon Kramer, the best filmmaking brothers this side of the Coen brothers. See you then.